October 19, 2017. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, uh, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neuroscience Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Selma Karashi. Um, our guest today is Veronica Alvarez. Hi, Veronica. Hi. She is Senior Investigator at NIAAA. Uh, her work is uh, defining the circuit and synaptic complexities that mediate addiction and motivated behavior, and she's using um, approaches, lots of approaches, like this is like one of the kitchen sink type people that we have here. She's doing um, cellular physiology, synaptic stuff, behavioral analysis, um, uh, and then uh, just a ton of manipulations um, in vivo and in vitro of, uh, of using some really interesting um, genetically engineered mouse models also and viral mm-hmm. vectors. So um, welcome. Thank you. And we have kind of a big group here. So we've got Charlie Wilson as usual. Hi. We've got Matt Wannett. Howdy. We've got Alfonso Apicella. Hello. And we've got Todd Troyer. Good afternoon. And we've got Carlos Palladini. Hello. We've had so many people here over the years talking about various things associated with all of this. And one of the things that... that keeps coming up is this idea of how um, the complexity of, of dopamine signals just impacts so many different aspects of behavior. And um, and you seem to tackle this the way I think most of us are kind of thinking about things now by framing your work around the cellular and structural complexity of the striatal circuitry, that the sort of the, the circuit that... that um, Underlies all this behavior, and um, and you don't shy away from the complexity part of it. You're not trying to reduce things. You're really trying to bear out some of the functional complexity of um, the diverse cell types, diverse um, behaviors that are being tested. And you're kind of involved in, in, or you've been thinking about synthesizing the entire body of literature. I was trying to review recently into you know framework of of thinking about these things given some of the new generation of techniques and um, experiments that people are doing. And so, you know, we always come back to the sort of indirect and direct DeLong framework, right? And so how do you start with a canonical framework? And then how do you sort of build and adapt? Can you just talk about thinking about frameworks in terms of old and new? Yeah, um, thank you for your description. It sounded... Uh, really nice. I, I, I think this is what we attempt to do. So um, if, if we are getting even close to that, I feel really flattered. Um, the way we um, have been going around is um, where we, we're taking the case of the drugs of abuse and our interest in addiction as well as I uh, probing the circuitry and trying to understand how the estriatum and the basal ganglia control behavior. So I feel like in some ways by using um, drugs of abuse, and in our case we have done a lot of studies with cocaine and now we're moving to alcohol, is one way to bring the system into one state um, um, that we truly don't understand, but we kind of lock it in one state and try to understand what happens there with the hope that eventually we'll, you know, then be able to understand better what happens when the brain is not loaded with these drugs. So one way in which we try to frame the system is we use, we're using um, 
drugs as a way of understanding better how the brain works. Now I feel like a psychedelic person in the 60s. <laughs> but, um, and so in, in that sense, we also, uh, the, the lab, for the first 10 years, we focus on trying to understand the role of D2 receptors in this circuitry because there is very compelling evidence in humans um, that uh, uh, drug abuse, especially stimulant abuse, is correlated with low levels of D2 receptors in the stratum. So we started there and say, okay, we have animal models, we can reproduce these um, in animals and start to ask, are these lower levels of D2 receptors predisposing or are a consequence to developing um, compulsive like behaviors towards drugs of abuse? And also, more importantly, which ones are the D2 receptors that are down that create the vulnerability? So that's where we got into doing cell-specific knockouts of D2 receptors so, so far we have knocked, it, knocked them down from the dopaminergic neurons and look how that alters cocaine taking and how it alters the circuitry. And then we moved on to looking at what lowering D2 receptors in the medium spinal neurons um, can do. And initially, as I show you today, was to look at the effect of cocaine, but what we found that actually changing the levels of D2 receptors in the indirect pathway mesense has profound consequences to the whole circuitry. And it has consequences that are not just affecting those same cells that bear D2 receptors, but they end up affecting uh, D1 cell activity and projections and so on. And uh, we found um, that these animals um, show kind of bradykinesia, like slowness of movement, so they replicate some of the phenotypes of dopamine depletion. And then we found what I showed today, that these animals also have a very blunted acute locomotor response to cocaine, but they still sensitize and so on. So our approach to framing uh, how the stratum works have come from the side of using drugs of abuse that we know will enhance dopamine levels um, and dopaminergic neuron activity in um, and then enhance dopamine levels in the striatum to try to then understand how the circuitry works and use these uh, well-known um, reduction of two receptors as you know to try to understand how can that cause a different brain that might be vulnerable for addiction. So, what about your original question? Is it if G two receptors are downregulated in drug addiction, and then you Downregulate them yourself. Uh, yes. Experimentally, does that mouse look like a drug addict? So far, we have to find the addict. <laughs> so no, they kind of um, look like that. They look more like a Parkinson's patient. Yeah. So the first thing, so we have done more studies with the orally two knockouts. We call it is the oral removing the oral receptor and. The oral receptor, removing the oral receptor actually leads to kind of the opposite phenotypes. These animals are uh, much better learners and, and they showed uh, evidence of kind of faster acquisition of cocaine self-administration 
Um, so in that sense, it will suggest that maybe lowering those other receptors could be in some ways predisposing in itself because it helps. So if, if they're downregulated in addiction, are they downregulated in the striatum or on the presynaptic cells? So the measurements were mainly done where people can measure the most, that is in the striatum. There you get both, but, because you get the axons yeah. of the dopamine cell and the postsynaptic neurons. So you can't tell them apart. Is there not a way to tell them apart with any of those PET methods or any of the that's the kind of method they use for doing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they use um, imaging of the just the, the ligand. They've been looking at B2 ligand binding in the striatum. And so, yeah, you don't know if they're binding to the D2 receptors on the postsynaptic cells there in the striatum or the terminals. And that's actually one way in which we're hoping to use these animals to try to determine uh, now if we do PET, in those animals in which we selectively knock down the other receptors, how much of the binding we lose. So we are about to do those. But we want to have all the all the transgenics together to run them together and have comparatives. So that was kind of in part one of the goals. But I have to say there is one study done in humans that has been able to look in the substantial area into receptor binding and seems to suggest those those um, number the, the levels of D2 receptors they are correlate very well with inversely but very well correlated with um, impulsivity and, and and other traits that might be associated with um, drug abuse. So there are some evidence even from the humans that the level the D2 receptors um, in the dopaminergic neurons can be important. Um, so now we are moving on to studying more of the postsynaptic receptors. And maybe the idea is that each one of them is contributing in different ways, or it might be that only one of them matters. We don't know. But um, we're starting from the hypothesis that each one of these receptors, because they are expressed in different cells, that have different functions, then the receptor itself is doing different things. Uh, we cannot ask what are D2 receptor activation doing because it's an... That also means you can't just target D2 receptors as a therapeutic. Yes. 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 And the other thing is... I um, agree. So when I don't you, know When you take cocaine or when you have Parkinson's disease, um, of course, you're not just affecting D2 receptors, you're affecting all dopamine. Receptors, right? So maybe you have a vulnerability towards taking drugs if you have lower D2 levels. But once you take them, now you're activating D2 and D1. So is there... So it, it may not be the D2 levels per se that are the addiction phenotype, right? It's the interaction among the different receptor subtypes that is out of balance because you have... Um, um, D2 receptor, uh, I guess, under-representation is what you would call it, um, but it's really an effect on the D1 receptors that are either more inhibited because of this or are less inhibited because of it, depending on how you view your circuits these days. Uh, so is there any interaction among the different receptor subtypes that we know of in, uh, I guess it's, I guess it's, we can't know this right now, but in the people that have lower D2 receptor expression levels. Yeah. So a lot of those lessons, yeah, by the way, I think you are hitting uh, 
the nail in the right spot is, um, and there are evidence of interactions, um, clear evidence of interactions from Parkinsonian patients that uh, when given Aldopa, they can um, they can trigger these um, behaviors, um, these dyskinesias that are known to be mediated by D1 receptor activation. So we see similar effects in our um, mice that we downregulate D2 receptors. Um, we see that the there's an upregulation of the D1 signaling. Um, and so it will speak exactly of what you were saying. Interactions between the cells that or interactions between the effects of the receptors, such as when you downregulate the two receptors, you are not just downregulating the, the activity of these receptors in these cells, you are clearly changing the whole circuitry. And then on top of that, so you have a totally different brain that is wired now differently. And there are evidence that this can happen even in adults. So in part from you know our manipulations, but the lab of Christoph Kellendon has shown that if you upregulate now D2 receptors even in adults, you can change even the projections of D1 cells, how much they project to the GP and so on. So the system is very plastic. And imagine now if you maybe have you're born with different levels because you are expressing different alleles or different of these snippets for um, D2 receptors that lead to different levels or that there are developmental factors that affect the levels. Then you can, the idea is that you end up with a, probably a very different brain wired uh, differently that now is exposed to, to drugs and so it can then interact differently. Um, so you mentioned you hit on something there where you're mentioning developmental changes, and it's known that you know D two expression work by McMarinelli, Jamie McCutcheon have sort of demonstrated these sort of de- developmental changes and sort of periods of sort of sensitivity of the dopamine system and you know sort of the amount that an individual will you know self administer um, you know varies with age. And I was just wondering if you could sort of speculate, you know, what what anim- what are you studying? So are you studying sort of the the adults that you're then trying to make addicts and have you, do you see any differences if you sort of go back to the juvenile? I know at least in the, the slicey Phillies, you know, realm, you know, back in the day, everybody was, you know, patching from, you know, P21, you know, very young animals and stuff. And now everybody's moved to, you know, patching from older animals. But, you know, there's actually sort of that in-between window, which is actually probably the most relevant if we want to talk about drug addiction, where, you know, the, the liability of individuals becoming a drug addict, addict you know, happens during adolescence. And How many days is that on us? I think the P sixty ish is sort of get, I, and I'm out. I'm out of my realm on this. There are people who have the sort of very adolescence. I'm out of my element, <laughs> my Donnie. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I guess have any of your experiments? Have you sort of looked and probed that sort of changes that you sort of see in the dynamic between sort of D two regulation influencing these things at different time points? Yeah, I mean we haven't yet, but it's a great question. Is that right? I mean once we. I think the goal is once we identify um, changes in the that are happening in the behavior, try to see whether there is some, you know, critical period after which this might not happen or not that. I think that's clearly a natural um, next next step. For now, we have been looking at uh, in 
the effects of drugs and also actually most of all our recordings are done in like young adults, like six, eight, you know, six and older, six weeks and older animals. So likely, well, if we do the injections around six age, so yeah, by the time they get to the slice, um, by the time they get to the rig, they're closer to nine, ten weeks. So I, I think I will safely say most of this is done in, in adults, but it would be very interesting to then go younger. So how big how big is the behavioral space? So if you have all these things, multiple things interacting in the mechanism realm, addicts aren't just addicts for one behavior, right? So they have things like acquisition and and, sure. and how much they persist and how much they relapse and all this sort of thing. And if you have multiple interacting uh, mechanisms, they may be more influential or influential on one aspect than another. Yes, I agree. And yeah, I think that's kind of what we are thinking, that this will create traits. And, and I like to think about addictive behaviors toward truly as a kind of a side effect of a, a lot of other very beneficial traits that you get with it. Um, and so I'm really interested in studying that because I think that the addictive kind of personality comes along with a lot of really cool, important um, traits that are very essential for survival and that they're critical to let us function in ways that uh, they can make us very successful, but guess what? Then you're also more vulnerable to to others, to you know, to to addiction. But I, I really see that as a trade, a side effect. <laughs> I don't know how you guys see that. I don't know how much you think about compulsive behaviors, but your facial expression, Charlie. Please say something about. <laughs> I think that in a lab all the time, I mean, I'm just super compulsive about everything there. I got a kick out of you saying some of these obsessive traits can be beneficial. I was like, I feel much better. <laughs> it makes me feel better, too. That's what I think. So how... how I want to get back to the circuitry. Yeah. So... Um, how can we uh, capitalize on on connectivity, um, and how and how do you um, because you know there's the local connectivity and there's the inputs and the outputs and um, you know there's there's topography um, yes. there are potentially functional units I mean how are you and then there's all these interesting axo-axonal connections between the output neurons of the striatum, right? And this is sort of throughout dorsal versus... And this, I also wanted to ask you about the dorsal versus ventral. Um, like do, do we imagine that sort of the same thing is happening? I mean, there's sort of the same processing going on. Or how do we... I, I, I have a very hazy... Everybody around this table understands striatum way better than I do. I think the listeners are probably closer to where, where I'm at with striatum in terms of understanding whether people are thinking about it in terms of, of core properties, um, distributed, like what, what are the models of how we're thinking about yeah, people processing and, and, and topography and all these sorts of ideas and whether behavior can map onto striatum. 
Well, these are actually great questions. So for knowing little, as you say, you can ask really the most poignant questions. Um, I, these are questions I'm asking myself too. I don't have all the answers. I, why one intuitive way in which I've been perceiving the system is that the basic organization, but it's based on, in part about the history and how we know the basal ganglia evolved, is that there are some basic organization that it's very similar between the ventral and the dorsal, but that they are specializing in controlling different behaviors from the dorsal striatum being more important for control of, uh, of movement and selection, action selection. But the and ventral how interconnected are they? Are these? Oh, okay. So the, the, this is from evidence of the one I, my lab has produced zero data, but there are basically a lot of, uh, published work that seems to suggest that there is, um, this interconnectivity that happens throughout the loop. So it's, it's, it's a hypothesis that with evidence that um, with, with some evidence in support that uh, truly the ventral part of the stranum and the dorsal part of the stranum are connected through the through basically loops that spiral through the circuit and uh, they spiral up. That is loops outside the stranum. Yes. The, the Can you pro- comment the on that? Fact Maybe is the first that there are no associational fibers in the stranum, so unlike cortex in which every part of the cortex is connected to many other parts of the cortex. Stratum is not like that at all. And each part of the cortex is not specifically connected to another group of parts of the striatum by way of associational fibers. So that was like sort of the first ancient discovery about the striatum that affected people's thinking about the striatum. So they tend to view it as a series of parallel pathways because of that, because some cortical area goes to some part of the striatum, and then that cortical area may be connected to other parts of the, of the cortex, but that part of the striatum is not going to be strongly connected to other parts of the striatum. And so, and so this famous view as a series of parallel loops that go between cortex and striatum and thalamus and back to cortex, and that these are loops that kind of don't interact with each other at the level of the striatum. They may interact at the level of the basal ganglia, I mean the lobus pallidus, you know, the output of the basal ganglia, or at the level of the thalamus, or at the level of the cortex, but not in the striatum. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, uh, it's been a mystery. I think we still don't know. There's been ideas about how they might, how these things might interact in the globus pallidus because everything gets smaller. The striatum is a big place. The globus pallidus is a small place, and so the possibility of things getting mixed signals crossing each other or converging. Converging is the Nice way of saying it. It makes it sound doesn't sound dysfunctional when you say it that way. Uh, that uh, is much higher in these output nuclei where there are a lot fewer neurons than there is in the striatum, where things are far apart and not very connected. But there are some, like cholinergic neurons, for example, can reach out across some distance. So those don't create associational fibers. Associational fibers would go from specifically from point A to point B and not places in between. But they make sort of domains, big blob of cholinergic mm-hmm. influence in a you know a, a 
the ellipsoid and the tissue or something where that cholinergic neuron has an influence, and that place might be fairly large. In a, in a rat or a mouse, it could be fairly large. Like the cholinergic neurons can reach over about a millimeter, and the whole striatum cross section in a mouse is a couple of millimeters. So I would say two or three cholinergic neurons. Oh, to get across the Well, side. no, or because when we are patching them and we have them, you know, expressing tomato and so on, so they are very sparse. But if you find a one, you're very likely to find another one. Yeah. So we're now trying to quantify, but they don't seem to be randomly distributed. We get the impression that they are in like tiny clusters. I don't know if there are two or three. So, but these domains that you're describing... I think they would be probably of just a subset, maybe not just one, but a pair of cholinergic interneurons. These clusters are in all the striatum, or they are more closer to the GP? So not we. Uh, no, they are. Well, I will know later more because we're trying to quantify that. But we see that the cholinergic interneurons uh, don't seem to be. Because if they are only, I don't know, 2%, you say, okay, randomly distribute 2% of X number of cells in this area, you're never going to get them two together. And we see them uh, very high probability in, in clusters. So we want us to determine if you got a section, if it would be two or three, whatever number. But then um, in addition to that type of a structure, we also see that there are not equal distribution throughout so the core seems to have a lot less density and then there might be some gradient um rostral curl but um but i don't know but you envision this kind of level of cholinergic dom dominance well when i was imagining this i was just going to make a comment that even though a millimeter may be a long way in a mouse stride it's not a long way in a human stride and so if we're looking at distant parts of the human striatum, there's no neuron that can reach, that we know of, that can reach from one part of it to the next. So distant parts in the striatum are independent of each other at the level of the striatum. That's, that was the only, that was my... Yeah, point. but through the loop, you yes, describe it more as parallel so. loops, but then there are, every, there are some people that seem to suggest that this loop, they are, they are not totally parallel, but that there is such an overlap that you could get information flow from the ventral striatum yes. all the way to I the dorsal. If, if, by way of sort of spirals. So Suzanne yes. Haber, who is yes, here exactly. not too long ago, huh? has shown these like spiral pathways that can get you from anywhere to anywhere that you want to go by by uh, traversing the loop enough times. Exactly. Like a spiral but, staircase. Right. <laughs> or it could be, yes, that's right. Like, uh, so that's that's the usual way of thinking how the ocular motor loop might affect the cognitive loop or something like that. They have, uh, according to the original idea behind these loops, they were carrying different kinds of information. So then the concept would be that in each one of these loops, you have then the whole circuit repeated, not the cortical or... Um, Inputs, yeah. the median spanning neurons with all their internals, all these triadal cells, 
then and the rest of the circuitry, and this repeats throughout with functions. Now, how do you see that? Yeah, so I mean, I'm, not, I'm, t- I'm telling you about that, Strick and Anderson, and the long model of this, right? It is not necessarily, uh, uh, let's see, I don't necessarily adhere to this model myself, but I'm open to suggestions. But the original idea, which was really based on the absence of these associational connections mm-hmm. between different parts of the basal ganglia, is that the basal ganglia is a bank of things that would perform some function, bank of circuits that would perform some function. Like you can imagine, I'm going to put together a big rack full of electrophysiology equipment for doing my experiment. Maybe I should organize it so everything on a rack is um, is going to is going to be um, a complete thing. Like one thing is going to be temperature control of my slice, and another mm-hmm. one is going to be uh, collecting my signals, and another one is going to be making my stimuli. And uh, or you could just say, no, I'm not going to do it that way because that's going to make long, longer wires. I could collect everything that's an amplifier, no matter what it's amplifying, and I could put it in this rack, and then I could take everything that's an integrator, no matter what it's integrating, I put it in this rack. And then I would just go rack to rack, and I could look through, uh, kind of slice at one level above the ground and say, this is amplifying this, integrating that same thing, this, these things are functionally related this way, rather than uh, horizontally, rather than vertically. So those are the, those are the sort of options that, that, he, that they were thinking about. So they were thinking, well, there's, you take the stridum, the globus pallidus, the thalamus, the cortex, that thing is a functional unit that does something. We don't know what it is. Nobody knows what it is still, I think. But it does something. And then you want to do that for oculomotor stuff. You want to do it for your uh, hand and arm. You want to do it for the leg. You want to do it for the head. You want to do it for cognition. Because there's a, a loop that strictly has to do with with basically thinking and, and deciding. And uh, even though you normally think of the basal ganglia as motor, the caudate isn't. The caudate in humans is cognitive and decision making. So the cognitive is part of the cognitive loops go through the caudate nucleus, and that's what they were thinking. And then the nucleus accumbens is some kind of motivation loop. Uh, that was their that was their original plan. And it was based on these anatomical observations, but the anatomical observations are not complete. So you can't you could follow two or three synapses because viruses were used that would hop synapses, and you could hop two or three synapses, then you kind of lose the thread. So you didn't follow the loop completely all the way around with certainty to know whether that loop ended back at the place in cortex where it began, which is sort of what they thought it would do, or whether it would end back somewhere else. If it ends back somewhere else, you don't get loops, you get spirals. So that's... uh, Still, I think loops or spirals are both possible, even could be happening at the same time because yeah. the thing that because axons can branch can do two things. So, anyway, that's just. Or you could have interneurons shunting between things like uh, that's right. Yeah. And in the global yeah. this there especially is opportunity for this connections between these loops. And that was that has been the basis for a lot of ideas about basal ganglia too, especially these ideas about 
contrast. Like if if one of these loops is active, it should step on and suppress the other ones. And so there's a kind of notion globus powerless would be good for doing that for having one loop suppress another one. Is there a direct and indirect pathway happening at the level of globus pallidus now? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, of course, globus pallidus includes both the external and internal segments. Yeah. So, so that no, I, I know, but it's just that whenever people talk about indirect and direct pathways, the automatic assumption is D1, D2 receptors at the level of the striatum, and then it's sort of maintained that way. Irrespective of all the convergence, the massive convergence that obviously has to happen to get to the level of the globus palace, as you said, it's a lot smaller. Yeah, there are a lot fewer nerves. Yeah, there has to be a lot of convergence. So there's sort of the norm. If you're a if you're a believer in these parallel pathways, you think, well, all the convergence is from the same modality. Right, and they have to maintain its modality. And they have to maintain its modality, but uh, it's just as easy to say, based on what we know, that it wouldn't do that. Yeah. That's the problem. Is that some of these ideas are really fundamental. It's so you don't think they do that? There evidence that they are not converging just within a. That's what you're saying. Yeah, I think there's. I think you can find. You know how it is. You can find papers that say anything. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but I think there's some reasonably good papers that show neurons and you know the part of globus pallidus that isn't the hand area that are responding to hand. Movements and things like that. It's a uh, it's a very hard experiment to be to do with absolute certainty that you're not getting any kind of artifact. Uh, so I, maybe those kinds of experiments are becoming easier to do because uh, we can track pathways. We can see them in our physiological experiments much better. We know that more about what we're recording from. And where we are, and this old, all of these old ideas came from, from these in, in vivo recordings in monkeys, where you're if you're doing some stimulation, doing some some recording, trying to map the thing, and then use that map which you got, which might sure. be kind of rough, you got it in a hurry in order to do the experiment you really want to do. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, now we have a lot more tools. Is that right? But we still have to be asking the right questions, <laughs> so because we can still use the tools in ways in which I feel sometimes they don't really help us understand something. So I, there's a lot of potential, but then it's even more pressure for us to be asking the right questions, is that right, then? And in, in the right way, with the right controls. So what does what dopamine do in Australia? I would say it's the wrong question. <laughs> That's the wrong question. Exactly. So what's, what's the right question? The right question is to say, like, where, in which region, and acting on which receptors, that would be kind of the, the concept. I mean, you will never ask, what is glutamate doing in the cortex? Right. I mean, like, you can't ask that question, but good luck finding an answer. You wouldn't expect one answer. Yeah, it's doing lots of things, and where in the cortex, acting on which, on pyramidal cells, on which layer, and on, or on in the interneurons, or... So, so I think... We have it. We're in an era now. We can manipulate so much. We can start getting into the nitty gritty of the circuitry, but we still then, then we have to start asking those questions in a better way. We can answer them now. Is that right? We can answer, for instance, what the inactivation of dopaminergic 
uh, of one single dopaminergic neuron can do to the circuitry. If it's bathing, you know, a quarter of the striatum with dopamine, can it be enough to influence activity, or do you need two or three of them? I think now we can ask those questions. So. You, sorry, you think that this will help us to understand how the brain works? If you remember a long time ago, Michael Brecht did this experiment where he was patching a single neuron in the secondary motor cortex in layer 5. By handing the cells to five few action potential, the animal was moving wisely. I don't still think that we know how the system works. Oh, wasn't that amazing? Oh, yeah. I think we can drive this one dopamine neuron and see what, you know, whether that thing could drive some motivated. Yeah. Well, I think it will depend on how the circuit is built. If there is conversion or diversion, I would say that probably for striatal neurons, that won't work. So, right? Because there is... There are many of them probably affecting one. Convergence, right? Yes. So then one will really matter, but that's just, you know, me and based on also the numbers, but the other way around could be... So so that was happening because in that specific circuitry, then that cell had so much power that it could produce um, power, but it won't happen in everything. Well, yeah, we also sort of know, I mean, with Parkinson's disease, when do we start seeing symptoms? I mean, obviously there is, you know, changes probably happening in the brain that we can't see, but, you know, you have to lose a substantial portion of dopamine neurons before you start seeing a behavioral phenotype, uh, you know, with a movement disorder. And so uh, this idea of one single dopamine neuron, like manipulating that, I think we kind of, maybe it's simplistic, but say we know the answer. One dopamine neuron isn't going to do anything. But wait a second, this is when you are finally see the phenotype, doesn't it? Fair enough, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and it's not like people are, uh, all of us are undergoing daily uh, very sophisticated tests to see if we have the behavioral, any behavioral symptoms of uh, dopamine cell loss. It isn't until I discover oh, that right. I'm shaking that I go to see the doctor, and the doctor says, well, you know, probably this has been going on for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, and the other thing I think is that the mani- I would I think biological systems are built in ways there is significant redundance and significant mechanisms are trying to make up. Is that right? Probably we're all mutants for something, or uh, likely one thing, probably multiple things, and we still all manage to have you know function somehow, and that's because there are many ways in which things can happen, but. Um, so you could probably get used to living with less dopaminergic cells if they're happening slowly over time and you start to get to compensate. And I think there are evidence in Parkinson that a lot of the problems and the phenotypes come actually from the compensation, not as much as from the loss. So they are equally these compensatory in quotations because compensatory makes it sound like negatives. I think com- we couldn't survive without compensatory mechanisms, but they can also can be the causes of many of the kind of diseases or pathologies that we, we see. So I think being able to still do acute manipulations in which we could silence maybe individual cells um, could be. And, and again, after I said that, I don't think that's an experiment that is might be worth doing in the trial where most of the cells are totally silent, period. But, but in, 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 in other circuits might be a good question. Okay, so then, maybe not what does dopamine do in the striatum. What does one dopamine cell do in the striatum? 
Yeah. And then and what cells in the striatum, I guess, would be the question. Where are these dopamine cells in the striatum that you're talking about? Yeah, so... Yeah. I mean, dopamine terminals, sorry. Yeah, no, that's a good point. So where, exactly? <laughs> that, that would be my answer. Is that right? Where? And are they releasing... So... Even more basic questions, I think. When this dopaminergic, one dopaminergic neuron fires and their axons are potential, you know, they are they are uh, expanding in like a large area in the stratum. Is release happening from all those areas equally, or maybe the levels of nicotinic receptor activation in individual hotspots is the is you know, decreasing the threshold of release on some terminals other than others. I mean, how these two things interact uh, is still not known. And then, well, I mean, some people will argue, are there dopaminergic synapses? I mean, believe it or not, there are people that actually don't believe that there are dopaminergic synapses. But, um, and I, I don't know, I'm not going to claim that I know whether they are or not, but I'm coming from, okay, they're in vesicles, and they're being released from boutons and the atom receptor. So I would call that synapse, even if it is not like a glutamatergic synapse. But um, the idea would be that you can, um, then by releasing on different areas of the axons or in different areas of the stratum, you might be acting on different postsynaptic targets and that there might be some control on that. So thank you for joining us, Veronica Alvarez. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Our listeners are used to work. You guys are proud. You said something that is really cool. What if the parallel, these parallel loops can also be um, interconnected spirals depending on the level of integration? Actually, there might be some evidence of that for sure. There are talks. I don't understand these loops, spirals. Okay, so they're... I like the loopy spirals. I mean, that would be a no, great... I mean, I understand, I understand the conceptual difference. I just don't understand how they could possibly work. Oh. <laughs> functionally? Work. So, the functionally, for instance, if you think about the shell, it's the only... The shell of the neck is the only one that sends projections to the VTA, mm-hmm. but the VTA sends projections to both the shell and the core. And so... So then the VTA has the ability to modulate both the shell and the core, but only be receiving, but only receiving, you know, relation from there. So then the idea is that eventually the shell indirectly is affecting the core through the loop, but it's affecting the core. So now the amount in which it's affecting could be modulated by the GABA interneurons or by multiple other factors, is that right? So there is room there that you can have less of the upward or, or more, or that it might be dependent on how much you are using the circuit, which is the evidence on that this the spiral becomes even more important over over training. So that's so there's the issue. So first of all, let's say we believe that a single GP neuron project or not, uh, what did you say? Core accumbens and the shell, the more shell, ventral part, single shell. Projects to a single dopamine cell that that sub dopamine cell no. projects to that right because you don't know because they're volume injections first of all no right? no actually a lot the, of those the tracing, are actually... the tracing experiments they that's how you do right because you, you can't just fill just one cell in any you case can. huh you can yeah well, how do you fill just one cell oh with the biocyan you mean just like yeah or even with virus are you talking about filling them with plasma yeah. Yeah, but that's when you if you get access to one cell. But most of the anatomy experiments, people just inject like 
No, they have yeah, so much yeah. of the anatomy figured okay, out, so, and there's so, a lot of convergence. But then there's a timing issue, right? So then it's like, and then you're saying that this loop, after the fact, has to know who was active at that time for it for that loop to happen. Otherwise, otherwise you have just a fixed circuit that never changes, right? That means that that this point A goes to VTA and then goes to point B in the core, okay. right? And then it doesn't, and that means that that circuit has one specific function. So there is a, up, let's do boxes, and I'm going to do three boxes only, but of course you have it. So imagine like you have cortex, triadum, and the midbrain, and the idea, and, and let's forget about all the complexities. That, so yeah. one concept will be that you have and well, thalamus, I guess I'm forgetting, but whatever. Mm. And so synapses back yeah, to this. And then the other one. Yeah. It's just a relay. It's just a relay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then one? you have these. So then this will be totally parallels. But what, what people at least have shown with Australian is that this does this. And so then this loop can eventually can end up affecting this. Yeah, but what and that's the, where the spiral comes. Right. So but you, have, you have some activity. You have some activity that the basal ganglia learns. Right? Yeah. You have some activity that the basal ganglia you, You're doing your, your backstroke in tennis. Yeah. It's not a stroke. It's backswing in tennis. <laughs> stroke would be swimming. Um, any case, you're learning something, right? And so, therefore, you did some movement. And you did a perfect back yeah. swing in back tennis, hand. backhand in tennis, right? And then you go, oh, that, that was a good thing, right? And then the loop comes around. And several milliseconds later, something happens, right? That because that it, it, it jumped from one loop to the next loop, and now that loop has to know what was the activity that happened. No, prior. By the time you learn it, all this has been stored. The loop has already. Somewhere passed. has to be learned. The original idea of the loop wasn't like that. The original idea of the loop is that behavior takes some time. So here's your backhand. And it's a sequence of things. And when, it, when the, uh, the cortex proposes, let's start the backhand now, the yeah. striatum says, has this been timing been associated with reward in the past? <laughs> hmm. Yes. Okay. Let's do it. Go. And then the striatum <coughs> says, go. And then the backhand starts. And then the loop comes back. And the cortex says, backhand still going? And the striatum says, has keeping it going been associated with reward in the past? Yes. Backhand keeps going. And at some point, the cortex says, are we still doing this? And the stratum says, no, according to our past experience, it's time to quit our swing. And you quit your swing. That's, that, if you can engage your cortex. Right. But the idea is that once you also have learned these things so much, know, you don't even need your cortex. Uh, that habit thing wasn't part of the original uh -huh. formulation. Okay, so, okay. We're asking just about the, the, the <laughs> yeah, right. Anderson yeah, right. and yeah, yeah. straight. <laughs>